good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there listening. On today's program, I'll take you with me inside the new Rhapsody Theater in Rogers Park. I caught up with the venue's co-owner and artistic director, Dr. Ricardo Rosencrantz, a Northwestern University medical professor with a passion for magic. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about a world premiere musical that's struggling to find its footing... And later, I'll talk to the director of a documentary all about Broadway's distinguished history. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. The structure at 1328 Morris Avenue in Chicago's Rogers Park neighborhood has seen a lot over the past century. Originally called the Morse Theater, it opened in 1912 as a vaudeville and movie house. Decades later, it was revamped and renamed the Coed Theater. In the mid-50s, the theater closed, and it became a synagogue. Then in 1986, the space became a shoe repair shop and storage facility. Over 20 years later, the building underwent a $6 million renovation, and it reopened as a jazz club named the Morse Theater. However, that endeavor was short-lived as suspected arson damaged the space and it changed hands again. It opened its doors again in 2010 as the main stage, with management presenting a mix of performing arts. After some initial fanfare surrounding the new venue, eventually the owner shifted the business completely to hosting private events. Then in 2020, the pandemic erupted and shut down the main stage. But just as it has several times over the past 110 years, the structure is ready to start a new chapter this week. The brand new Rhapsody Theater officially opened its doors this weekend with a magic show. The plan is for the historic 200-seat venue to present a mix of magic and music shows and eventually open a full-service restaurant in the front of the house. This latest iteration of the venue on Morse is being led by Dr. Ricardo Rosencrantz a Northwestern University medical professor slash magician. Chicago is an incredible city historically for magic. I recently caught up with Rosencrantz at the Rhapsody Theater days before it was set to open. Workers were outside installing a new marquee. The Mexico City native spends a great deal of his time teaching at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern. But around 25 years ago, he developed a new passion outside of the medical field, when he started learning about magic. I read something that you wandered into a magic shop in Mexico several years ago, and that's really what, what sparked your interest in performing magic? Yes, so actually when I was a child, my, my big passion was opera. I was very interested in opera and classical music. And so fast forward to many years later, about 25 years ago, I was in Mexico City. I'm originally from Mexico, and I was in Mexico City on a Saturday. We went to this beautiful old part of town and I like to say that I walked into the magic store that time forgot because it was uh, exactly as old magic stores were very few of them right now in Chicago there's one beautiful store like that 
So I started buying a few things from him and it got me interested, but I still didn't know where to go with this. And then I met one of the most amazing people, uh, most important people in my life, five blocks away from me here in Chicago. His name was, because sadly he's passed away, Eugene Berger. And Eugene was the greatest magician that a lot of people have not heard of. Eugene is someone that is in the world of magic, revered and beloved, and um, really had a, had a philosophy that magic is about transformation, magic has meaning, magic is deep. From there, his interest in magic increased, and he realized there was a way to connect his day job and new passion. It was very interesting because at one point, you know, I wanted to perform more. I needed a gig. But then I realized that I could start doing magic at the medical school. What I realized is that I could use magic to tell stories that were relevant to what the students were learning. And I was asked to put together a class, and we have a wonderful humanities program at Northwestern. So I created and have been running for the last 13 years a course for first-year and second-year medical students on medicine and magic. It's the only one in the country like this that you'll find. It's uh, for credit. Uh, they don't have a test, but they have to perform for each other. And I bring in great magicians to the class that also teach them things. So Teller has been in the class, and uh, they, they, they Zoomed with Copperfield to a class, and then all of my wonderful magician friends that I have. So magic came to my life really through the medical side of things. It's interesting to hear about this class. Is the idea that the magic performance elements help these future doctors with bedside manner or communicating com complex ideas with patients? My thinking and writing on the subject has been really about um, that medicine is a performance art. And having physicians understand that a lot of what we're having to happen and there's a lot of theoretical work in the world of performance studies. I won't get into that. But in essence, that moment with a doctor-patient in many ways is a, is a performance. And doctors need to understand what else is going on in that space. Um, and all sorts of things matter. The words that you choose, the timing that you have, how everybody is in that space, the content that is being delivered. And, and so I realized that doctors uh, could learn from what performers do, and magicians, because magic is such a communicative art form. Part one of it, I say that medicine is a performing art. And in fact, sometimes I say medicine is a performance art, because it's more like experiential, not just something you see far away. So we spend time with the students understanding how, how that happens. And I feel like they get great classes in terms of communication. And, and having an understanding of scripting and that. But this puts it together in a bigger way because this really talks also about meaning and understanding and interpretation. The other thing, of course, is magic is very much about belief. Magic is not about deception. Magic is about illusion and the creation of belief. And we need to understand how patients create their own belief, how uh, they will, for example, say yes to this treatment or no to that other treatment. And we need to understand how we can connect with them given all the different belief models that they, they have. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Dr. Ricardo Rosencrantz about the new performance venue he's opening called the Rhapsody Theater. Chicago has this history with a particular type of magic called close-up magic. Is that what you're interested in? My mentor, Eugene, was at the heart and center of that. He is considered one of those great Chicago magicians. Most of what he did was close-up, so naturally the very first things that I learned had to do with close-up magic. 
But I was drawn to, always from, from the beginning, to the possibilities of a larger stage. Not, again, not a 500-seat stage. In Magic, we might sometimes call Parlor, which could be a group of 50 people or 60 people. That's what I wanted to do. So, of course, I had a lot of uh, great close-up magic repertoire that I, I learned from Eugene and from other great magicians. But I was building this show with larger pieces that play to larger audiences, 200 people, 300 people, in a stage, in a set, with a different storyline and a story arc. Around 2016, Rosencrantz launched his own stage show called the Rosencrantz Mysteries. That show is a show that deals with, I mean, it doesn't really have a plot, but it has a story arc to it. I, I talk about myself, I talk about my journey and what I discovered in magic and what I've also discovered and feel about medicine. My sort of self-titled show these days is Physician Magician. In magic, they know me as the Physician Magician. So every magic effect in that show talks about um, some of the attributes of a great doctor. Someone who listens, someone who has empathy. I show that with magic, impossible things that happen that, that, that um, are going on. And I also talk about empowerment, feeling like my audience members are the ones that are really the powerful ones. It's not about me being this powerful magician. It's really they have the power to do things. And that is what I think the show is about. Fast forward a bit, and last year an opportunity for Rosencrantz to take over an existing performance venue with some great acoustics and historical panache presented itself. We're coming off this and we're still kind of in this strange period the past two years because of the, the pandemic, not as many live performances. Were you looking to start your own thing or was this an opportunity that came into your life? Well, I think pre-pandemic, I was looking for a space because I was never really satisfied with uh, the reality of trying to book a good space in a theater in Chicago. And sadly, that theater that I performed is, is, is no longer. Uh, it's closed its doors forever. So I was looking for a space. This came to us last year in 21. And I had a sense then, and I did a lot of COVID work these last two years in, in helping in policy. And in fact, I ended up sort of doing some COVID advisory work. I have a, a great sense that people need to be together. Everybody's pining away for being together. We're seeing it right now, right? I mean, there is something special to being physically in the same room with, with performers. So I think it is a great moment. Um, in that everyone wants to do that. And sure, COVID isn't over as, as conveniently as we all would want. But as a doctor, I see how this is moving. And I think that people want, they want to hear music live. They want to see um, live theater. And when I walked into the space, I also brought a friend of mine who's a fantastic cellist, uh, plays for the Chicago Symphony, and a four-time Grammy award-winning engineer to hear the acoustics. And we were just floored with a room. And so back to my interest in music and opera, and I said, you know, this is exactly that right venue for magic and a whole bunch of different things in music, like chamber music, because chamber music was meant to be performed in a small, intimate space, not necessarily a, a large, large space. And this is a great venue for jazz, and it's a great venue for comedy and for world music. I guess my two passions in in art have always been music and magic and now somehow we found a way to do that in in this place and that's why the name rhapsody because rhapsody is a musical term uh it's a whimsical term sure. you can conjure up a musical rhapsody and you can conjure up a magical rhapsody
Yeah, I was curious about your ideas uh, for programming, and I know probably things are still developing because the doors haven't opened yet, but do you envision then like certain nights you'll have magic performances and then other nights concerts? It's a really versatile space in that uh, we can change the staging, we can change the set, we can move instruments in and out very quickly. And that was another thing that we discovered was incredible. So yes, and we actually already have a lot planned. We pretty much have magic uh, runs uh, planned between now and uh, January, through January. And with world-class, amazing magicians, we're opening up with probably the most sought-after magician in the world right now. Uh, her name is Carissa Hendricks, and she's just incredible, and she couldn't think of anyone better to open the theater. In music, um, a very prestigious chamber group called Civitas, members of the Chicago Symphony, um, is where we're doing a, a performance next week to announce a partnership with them where they will, they're moving over here to do all of their performances here. So we are already clicking in the world of magic and the world of music. And we already have a, an incredible piano comedy program that will happen the last Sunday of every month with a great performer um, and his friends who will be doing comedy with piano. So that's, that's there, and I've been talking to some jazz groups. I've been talking to, there's, there's a Mexican Bolero music festival that we're talking about. And so a lot of, a lot of beautiful um, ideas in the world of music. And the magic is already all ready and set to go. The long history of the new Rhapsody Theater isn't lost on Rosencrantz. The original building um, was here in 1912. And that was a, what we would call a Nickelodeon theater. So it was a black and white silent movie theater. Somewhere in the 20s, they needed to upgrade it to talkies, right? And the theater eventually uh, got a different name. It was called the co-ed theater because the co-ed students would come to the theater. Um, Loyola being right here and Northwestern not being too far. I know people who used to come to the co-ed and pay, uh, I think she told me like 10 cents for a movie and they have fond memories. Then at some point in the 50s, I believe, the theater uh, was no longer a theater and it had various tenants of all sorts of of natures, including a a cobbler that just basically was using it as a storefront and storage up until um, the year 2000 plus. And in the mid-2000s, a group came, was interested in developing. Uh, They preserved the facade of the theater, developing some real estate here in the neighborhood, including turning the, 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 rehabbing the theater. And so they preserved the beautiful 1912 facade, but knocked down the actual theater and built this incredibly beautiful state-of-the-art space. That group ultimately ran the space uh, with the name of the main stage, M-A-Y-N-E. You might be familiar, there were some amazing concerts here, particularly in the early 2010, 11, 12. There was even a live uh, from the main stage show at WFMT. And then unfortunately, that good successful run ended for them. Ultimately, it became an event space. And then, of course, during the pandemic, I think the idea was to try to find someone to to energize the space again, and I guess uh, we found each other. We were talking before we started recording, so the you know shows are starting up, and then you'll have the bars, uh, um, and then the front, there's a space for a restaurant, but that'll come later. Yeah, so, you know, I am very much someone who 
focuses on the experience. As I was telling you, I've been very interested in the patient experience, and that has been a big driver for me. How do we experience a space or an evening? And so we love the idea that here we could really create something from the beginning to the end. So we have valet parking, and of course the L-stop is right here, so arriving is easy, leaving your car is easy. The fact that there is a restaurant is amazing. How many times have you been to the theater district and been very stressed out about eating before or not finding a good place to eat after because uh, it's not in sync? And so here the idea is you come, you eat before, the show's not going to start without you because we know you're coming to the show. At the end, there's wonderful food. No one's going to rush you away. And so we are looking um, to find a great operator for the restaurant, and we're in the process of that. Um, but we are opening the restaurant as, as a bar, and we have two lovely b additional bar spaces inside. And for most of these performances, even some of the classical music performances, the idea is that people can have drinks inside, they sit at a table, and it's not stuffy. The Rhapsody Theater's first show opened this weekend with magician Carissa Hendricks presenting her full theatrical production, Lucy Darling, Indulgence. And Rosencrantz already has a schedule filled for the remainder of the year, and as you just heard, plans for a new restaurant. So while the focus is on the short term and getting the theater off the ground, there's also some optimism about the space's long-term future. My hope in five years is that a couple of things have happened. Um, first of all, that we have somehow enriched the neighborhood. I'm all about this beautiful Rogers Park neighborhood. I think it's wonderful. We don't live here, but um, I see the, the vibrancy and excitement of this neighborhood. My first real big goal is that the theater has found a great foothold, and it has attracted a lot of people to come and see this beautiful street, this beautiful Morse Avenue Street in, in, in Rogers Park, and that maybe we've had an impact um, on, on the street. and. Uh, there's nothing more I would love than for a, another theater to come in and, and maybe be across the street from us. There's already a, a couple of beautiful uh, other entertainment places down the street, and if we have turned this street collectively, all of us together, into, into that, that would be the, my most beautiful objective. And the other thing that I would like in five years is that people know that this is a place where they come to hear stories. That's Dr. Ricardo Rosencrantz. He's a managing partner and the artistic director of the new Rhapsody Theater in Chicago's Rogers Park neighborhood. You can find more information at rhapsodytheater.com. And a quick reminder, if you tune into the arts section every week right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM, make sure to visit the program's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find... Past episodes and individual features like the one you just heard, available to listen to on demand anytime you want. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm joined now by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Barbonell. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. Hope everyone is staying cool after that heat wave earlier this week. It's all about skates in the world premiere musical Skates, a new musical. 
It's recently opened at the newly renovated Studebaker Theater in the Fine Arts Building in Chicago. But what was supposed to be a summer-long run into late August has been shortened, and now the new musical is set to close next week on June 26th. Jonathan, I'm guessing low ticket sales are the culprit here. Have you heard anything as to why the production is closing early? Yeah, I think the low ticket sales, the culprit, and also this was originally slated to be an off-loop musical at the Royal George, which... Uh, is 450 seats, or was, it's no longer active as a theater, uh, which is very large for an off-loop theater, but a lot smaller than the 1,000 seats of the Studebaker Theater. So when you move down to the loop, your costs go up, the size of the house is greater, you have more unions to deal with, it becomes a more expensive proposition. And your show really needs to draw, which this world premiere is not doing. It's having a rough time downtown at the, as you said, the Studebaker Theater, the beautifully renovated uh, Studebaker. And it closes next Sunday, June 26th, rather than running through the summer. The question here, Gary, is do the creators of this show see a future for skates? And if so, do they have what it takes to shape it into a stronger show? Um, I would say right now, as it exists now, its biggest strength is the score, with music by Rick Briskin and lyrics by Briskin and Christine Ria. It's uh, a pleasantly mainstream rock score with nods to doo-wop and uh, R&B and soul and punk. Many songs really work quite well. Uh, For example, the love duet, I'm Crushing on You, which I really like. Mm-hmm. And the penultimate rocker, You Say You're Sorry. Uh, but a few of the songs need better placement in the show to be more effective. The songs are good, but they're in the wrong spot. And there are a few songs that need to be cut, such as the Ouija song in Act mm-hmm. One. Carrie, what's your take? I, I agree. I think the book tends to fall into the trap of telling rather than showing. I, I think it, it, the story is clear enough, given the, the back-and-forth you know, chronology with the, the, uh, the rock star played by uh, Jacqueline Miller, played by the American Idol vet, Diana DeGarmo, who is you know, having a rough time on the road. Her manager has run off with her money. Her boyfriend, played by uh, Ace Young, another American Idol uh, vet, is you know, philandering and very uh, dismissive slash jealous of Jacqueline's success. She's yearning to go back to a simpler time. So presto changeo. You know, she's thrown back in a memory play sort of device to the 1970s South Side roller rink where she's, you know, culture where she's kind of the awkward girl coming of age with her friends. There's uh, a few, maybe a few too many subplots, but basically I felt like the structure was okay. It's just, we're, again, we're being told rather than shown. Um, there's, there's a case of the characters saying things to each other that you were like, well, wouldn't they already know that? And you realize, oh, they're saying it for our benefit. <laughs> so yeah. I think it definitely needs a, a major overhaul in the book department, at least as far as making the dialogue feel a little less strained in that way. Yes, I think it certainly needs a, a major. I mean, the book is the, the problem. The story is also by Christine Ria, and this whole show is her idea, and apparently based at least in part on her own experiences growing up 
uh, mm-hmm. in the Chicago South Suburbs and the Roller Rink and all that. We didn't say the show opens in 1994. It's not right, contemporary right. today. Not contemporary, sure. Yeah. The hero is Jacqueline Miller, or Jacqueline Miller, a rising rock star singer-songwriter on a national tour. But as you said, within minutes, Skates flashes back to 1977 in Chicago, where Jacqueline encounters her 12-year-old self called Jackie. And this flashback takes, takes up most of the show and reveals that Jacqueline's, Jackie's strengths and insecurities were formed in large part by the teenage culture of the Windy City Skates roller rink. Now, here's where we get specific about a musical that works and one that doesn't. You pinpointed a few things, Carrie. But let's start with the fact that Jacqueline has no reason to flash back. She has a number one hit song, and she's appearing that week on Oprah. She's a rising star without a crisis. And so what if her business manager ran off with some of the tour cash? And so what if her boyfriend has split for a bit? Uh, Skates really needs a stronger reason why Jacqueline wants to go back to a simpler time. Yeah, when she I does, agree. It isn't really simple. It isn't really any simpler, isn't it? Right. And which I think could be a very strong point. I think there's a lot to be said about nostalgia. You know, I have a friend who always says she keeps her journals because the best way to keep yourself from thinking things were so much better back, you know, name a year, is to go and look at your journals from that year and realize, no, you know, I wasn't completely happy yeah. then either. You know? um, I yeah. do think there's a place and a need, really, for... Uh, more theater that is about, you know, prepubescent girls. You know, I think that this, that's a very strong, dramatic time of life, speaking from my own experience. I think the show that uh, when it leans into the honesty of the relationships, that you can have a best friend, as young Jackie does, who you really like, but who you're also jealous of and who is sometimes jealous of you when you, they realize, oh, now they're getting attention from boys. <laughs> you know, yeah, when it's like, I'm supposed to be the butterfly. That's a true dynamic, and it's played... Um, pretty well here, I think, and I think I would love to see more of that rather than some of the, you know, plot twists involving, uh, you know, the ne'er-do-wells, you know, who hang out at the rink and who kind of get involved in um, threatening Jackie and her older brother. That that just feels like a little bit of, uh, you know, unnecessary, you know, (laughs) attention is paid to that story rather than the real central one of these relationships, and I agree with you, yeah. Exactly. That if it were tied in with something that Jackie and her, Jacqueline, in her 1994 incarnation is really going through, then that would give us more of a through, through line, a more dramatic through line for why, why this year, why these events, why now. Yeah, okay, so the show focuses, once the flashbacks start, it focuses on young Jackie, which relegates the older Jacqueline to being a passive observer. And the only real action, physically, action in the show, as you have said, the only real crisis is a subplot about Jackie's older brother and the local bully. And when that's in play, it sidelines both Jackie Mm -hmm. and Jacqueline, both the younger and older self. And rule number one of playwriting is that passive heroes don't work. And who is supposed to be the hero here in, in any case? Is it the older or the younger. I think that Christine Rhea, as the book writer, as, as the idea person, is, uh, hasn't quite decided yet. Skates also has an unnecessary intermission. 
Yeah. If you cut a few <laughs> songs and the intermission, Skates could be a tight 100-minute show. When you have an intermission, when Act 2 begins at the precise moment in time and action when Act 1 ended, that is always a clue that this is an arbitrary and unnecessary intermission that has nothing to do with the dramatic structure or flow of the show. Right. Anyway, making these changes isn't easy. <laughs> you know, the structure of any musical is right. complicated and fragile. But they're necessary if Skates is going to <clears throat> roll more smoothly. Right. Uh, I do want to give some credit to the performers. I think, I think particularly absolutely. Emma Lord as young Jackie Miller has a terrific voice. Although we don't see much of them, the parents in the 1970s flashback are played by locals Jason Richards and Corey Goodrich, and they are absolutely delightful. But I think it needs more than that, as, you, as you've said, Jonathan, for us to feel really, really drawn into this story. As it is now, it's, a, it, you know, it's kind of a cute character study with some decent songs, and I think it needs more for us to feel like it's a fully rounded, no pun intended, with wheels, you know? <laughs> well, you know I, you know I, I certainly agree with you that Skates has a good cast with terrific voices, all of them. Mm-hmm. The, the stars, Diana DeGarno and Ace Young, uh, Gary, as you said, sure. listeners may know them from American Idol or The Young and the Restless, and they both, I was surprised, <laughs> have a, you know, a string of music and theater credits. Uh, but good as they are, the stand-up really is Emma Lord as the young Jackie. These three, those three are out-of-town performers, but the rest of the cast and most of the production team are very talented Chicago theater veterans. Jonathan, this is a small detail, but I, yeah. they're not actually roller skating. They seem to, I was really fascinated by what they're wearing on their feet, because they look like skates, but I could not see wheelies within them. So they seem to be sliding on this surface at the roller rink. What, is, what were your thoughts on that? I, I spent, maybe this is a sign of where I was not absorbed in the book because I was spending time trying to figure out what exactly is the mechanism <laughs> at work there. <laughs> there is a credit in the program. Oh, yes. Elizabeth I... Flauto. I see. Elizabeth Flauto gets a special thanks for custom craft work on skate boots. Yeah. yeah. So they're not actually roller skates, but there's some, yeah, it, you know, from the audience, they look like roller skates, but sure. they're not. And there's something inside it that slides easily across the floor, but is less dangerous right. than, than skates. So, so it's, it's, so it's not like it's Starlight right. Express, where I think they had actual skates. Yes. <laughs> if, yes. if memory swayed back, you know, speaking of, you know, nostalgia surfers. It's, it's not like Gene Kelly dancing on roller skates. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Yeah. But, yeah. Yes, indeed. Were yeah. you a roller skating kid? You, you know, I'm kid? a very awkward person, so no, because, you know, I, I, I've been known to break bones just walking across my living room, so no, not really. But yeah. um, I definitely, you know, I know there's, especially in Chicago, I think we, we talked when we had this as a possible, you know, spring or summer preview pick, Rainbow Rink, you know, it was... It was Northside culture still looms large in the narratives of people who grew up at that time. Yeah. Um, so I think there's definitely, you know, I think there's there's a possibility that this could, as you've said, Jonathan, you know, with some major reworking, still, you know, be a nice uh, off-off loop or, uh, you know, smaller theater offering. Um, and again, I think there really is a need for stories about girls about the age of Jackie and uh, how girls find their confidence, how they lose it. Those are These are good things, you know, these are important stories to tell. I don't know if this came up, but the uh, DeGarmo and Ace Young, they're married in real life. So oh, are they? That's interesting, because I think that the creators, uh, Ray and Briskin, are as well. Yeah. So, ah, okay. Ah, okay. You know, it really gets tough to shape and edit a show when 
all the collaborators uh, are, are that yeah. personally invested. Um, yeah. uh, you, you, you really need a powerful outside person to say yes and no um, to a lot yeah. of things. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Listeners who don't know, the Studebaker Theater uh, first opened in 1898 and uh, then was uh, derelict. Uh, it was still in use as a legitimate downtown theater for Broadway shows in the 60s and um, and possibly even into the, into, I think, into the early 70s. Then it was uh, broken up and subdivided into you know three cinemas, smaller cinemas and so forth. And it was derelict for a while, and the current owners poured, uh, I think, around $20 million into a beautiful, gorgeous renovation and new seats and new stage equipment and so forth to make it into a modern theater around a thousand seats. So it's a beauty, and it's part of Chicago's, really, Chicago's theater history. I think it was uh, an adult theater for a brief period in that that weird period. Oh, yeah. I don't remember that. I do remember <laughs> when it was the Fine Arts Movie Theater. <laughs> Definitely not adult, unless, you know, some art film would meet this definition, which yeah, we could. <laughs> I, think, I think art films. Okay. Yeah, I remember they showed art films. I don't art know films, that. adult films. Adult films. <laughs> I thought I saw the a adult, picture, like a vintage the photo. Theaters, the adult film theaters were where are, are where the Goodman Theater now stands. The old Selwyn and Harris Theater showed softcore porn when Elizabeth Taylor owned them. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, yes, that's, a, that's another story. We'll yeah. take that for another Jeez. <laughs> Just because I know that there's a listener out there that's going to Google it, uh, I did uh, look it up. And so for the, the final year of showing movies, the the Studebaker Theater, then known as the World Playhouse, did show adult films in 1972. Wow. Wow. And I've got, okay. a, I've got a picture here. <laughs> well, you seem, you really seem to be, you know, up to speed on all the adult films in, in theaters in Chicago. Perhaps. Perhaps, will, perhaps Gary will write his own musical about that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe Elizabeth Taylor will be involved. We'll see. Well, uh, if you do want to see Skates, it's running for another week at the Studebaker Theater. And uh, really quickly, we wanted to just look back at uh, the Tony Awards took place last Sunday. Uh, Carrie was here, and we, we talked a little bit about him. Now Jonathan's uh, back with us. Uh, thoughts on the, on the show? Did you both watch? I, I didn't get to see all of it, but I did see a good chunk of it. Yeah, I saw the whole show, and I, I thought it was a good show, a good production. Two things I miss, you know, it is now all about musicals, 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 mm-hmm. musicals. If you watch the Tony, you would think that the only Broadway shows are musicals. Um, they used to you know, give more attention and focus to drama, to plays, including scenes from plays, just as they have scenes from the musicals. And in order to make more room for more musical numbers, they no longer present uh, certain categories of the Tonys on television. They are presented, of course, to the live audience there in New York, but Viewers don't see them. And these included two awards, Tony Awards, one by the Musical Six, which, of course, started at Chicago Shakespeare Theater here in Chicago, uh, and also 
Chicago Shakespeare Theater is one of the, the Broadway producers, so their their name probably was mentioned, mm-hmm. though we didn't hear it. But six won the Tony Award for Best Music and Lyrics, Best Score of a Musical, and it also won the Tony Award for Costume Design. And I think it's important to note that uh, local sound designer, Mikhail Fixel, known as Misha to his friends, who has long been working at theaters of all sizes in Chicago as well as elsewhere, uh, was uh, the winner in the sound design category for Dana H., a play which also started out at, well, I think it was the Center Theater Group, but was at the Goodman Theater almost three years ago before um, the shutdown. This is a play where uh, sound design is particularly important because I don't remember if we reviewed it for our listeners or not, Jonathan, but it's a play by Lucas Nace based on interviews, and we actually hear his mother's voice in these tapes. His mother, um, many, many years ago, was kidnapped and taken on a very harrowing road trip by the man who kidnapped her. Deirdre O'Connell, who is the sole performer in the show, lip-syncs to those recordings. Um, to say it's just lip-sync is kind of doing a disservice to it. Both O'Connell and Fixel were awarded, and in post-award uh, interviews I saw with Nisha, he was talking about the fact that he, it, this show required much more collaboration as a sound designer than you usually get, that he was in, you know, with the directors, with the, because, you know, yeah. the sound is really, you know, another, a full character, <laughs> literally, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. And it's, so it was exciting, and also I think it's worth noting that, um, you know, a few years ago, the Tonys made the ill-fated and, or I should say, ill-advised decision to cut sound design as a category altogether. Uh, they got a lot of pushback on that, rightly so, and as someone who's admired Sixel's work as a sound designer and composer in so many shows over the years, I was just absolutely delighted to see him acknowledged, particularly for right. shows, I said, like this right. one, that is so dependent on those sound cues. Yeah. We also have noted, I guess a few weeks ago, that Court Theatre, the professional theater company on the campus of the University of Chicago on the South Side, was this year's recipient of the Tony Award for an Outstanding Regional Theater. And that also was not seen on television, though it was presented in some of our local newscasts, picked it up. Court Theater becomes the sixth Chicago theater to win the Regional Theater Tony, a, uh, a, a, a total number that far exceeds any other city in the United States. The recipients have been uh, the Steppenwolf Theater Company, the Goodman Theater Company, Victory Gardens, Chicago Shakespeare Theater Company, Looking Glass Theater Company, and now Court Theater Company. As uh, I have this as a as corroborated fact in a meeting a few years ago of the Tony Awards Committee in New York City, when the selection of the regional theater was announced, a member of the board was heard to say, oh, no, not another damn Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Sorry, yes. haters. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> also, I suppose on a sadder note, you know, like, like the Oscars, the Tony Awards also have an in-memoriam uh, section for people we have lost artists, and one of them was Chicago-based wonderful leading lady Hollis Resnick, who also had a Broadway career, and we had noted her passing, uh, uh, I guess, a couple of months ago. She was much too young, still in her 60s, and uh, greatly to be missed, not only here, but obviously uh, within the New York theater community as well. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. You're welcome. Thank you both. We'll talk next week.
I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. They say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. On After two years of darkness and uncertainty, the lights are on again on Broadway. As you just heard the Dueling Critics talk about last Sunday, a live Tony Awards ceremony served as a symbolic return to pre-pandemic life in the theater community. Though there are still some big questions regarding audiences and if they're ready to return to live performance spaces. So far, at least in New York, it looks like people are feeling more comfortable. A recent documentary looks back at the remarkable history of the area we call Broadway. The film, appropriately titled On Broadway, highlights the highs and lows of the New York City theater scene over the decades. I caught up with the documentary's director, Oren Jacoby. We talked about the film and what history can tell us about this uncertain moment. Was there something that inspired you to to make a, a documentary about Broadway? How did this come about? Well, it was a very fortuitous meeting, actually. I go many years to a New Year's Day party in my neighborhood in the Upper West Side in Manhattan with friends and new, meet new friends. And several years ago, I went to this party on New Year's Day, and a friend of mine waved me over and said, I want you to meet someone. She's interested in, in making a documentary. And the woman was Pat Schoenfeld, who at the time, I guess, was 88 or 89 years old, and the widow of Jerry Schoenfeld. Uh, who had been the the amazing impresario, the chairman of the Schubert organization for many, many years, and had been, as his self-titled autobiography uh, claimed, he was Mr. Broadway. (laughs) And Pat Pat had gotten uh, Jerry's memoir published posthumously. She put a lot of work into, you know, getting an editor to work with her on the text, and had gotten an agent, had gotten it published. And she thought it would be a great basis for a documentary. And so she asked me if I would be interested, and I said, well, I'd love to read the book. And I knew about Jerry. I, you know, I had a background in theater. It sort of ran parallel to my film career. And so I was well aware of his, his impact. So I, I read the book, and I talked to her after, and I said, Pat, you know, there's a great story here. Unfortunately, Jerry's not around, so we really can't tell Jerry's version of that story. Because there aren't interviews with him. You know, we can't bring this book to life. Um, but I think there's a story in here that we really can bring to life, which is the amazing unknown story of how Broadway really reinvented itself several times over the past 50 years. Um, and he was one of, of a number of important players in that reinvention. And really, it was it was a process of saving Broadway, which almost went out of business in the early 1970s for many reasons, which we kind of track in the movie. Around what time period was that, with that initial conversation? We ended up filming, I have to always backtrack, we ended up filming in the in the 2018-19 season. So I'm guessing it, we're talking about New Year's Day on 2018. The only reason I ask is because obviously in March of 2020, everything changes. And so when you talk about Broadway reinventing itself and saving itself those ideas apply to what's going on right now i was curious did the pandemic start while you were still working on this did it change your thought process at all well i mean it's so fortuitous i mean it's it's you know tragic that what we've all been through but in terms of the residents of our film i think it's a much more meaningful film now 
than when we actually finished them. We finished it right before the pandemic hit. We had a premiere at a film festival in the Hamptons in New York. And, um, you know, there was some interest and it was the film was, you know, tells a, an important story. But it's nowhere near the reception that the film has now as people are really concerned, can Broadway come back again? And our film shows a model of how they've did it in the past and and I think inspiring in some ways, you know, people to realize that it can happen again. I think a lot of people, even some of us that, that go to the theater regularly, think of Broadway as this institution that's always been there and will always be there. But as <laughs> but as you show in the film, there were there were these periods, especially starting in the, in the late 60s when the New York theater scene was struggling. Yeah, I mean, things got so bad in New York and in Broadway that there was a serious proposal uh, that was you know, considered you know, at the highest levels of New York government to tear down all of the existing Broadway theaters and turn those spaces into parking lots, parking garages, so that commuters coming in to work in office buildings would have a place to park their cars. <laughs> which is sort of crazy, incredible or laughable if you think about it. Right. Um, Especially when you think about what Broadway does for the economy of New York City. I mean, just a couple statistics to throw in here. The season that we filmed, 2018-19, was the most successful season in terms of ticket sales that Broadway ever had. Nearly 15 million people saw a Broadway show, and ticket sales were nearly $2 billion. But that's nothing compared to the impact on the wider economy, of which Broadway contributed over, you know, $12.5 billion to the economy and supports, you know, nearly 90,000 local jobs. So the, the theater and the arts in general are a huge economic engine for any city, as you know, in Chicago. And it's really true in, in New York. Like, as one of the people we interview says, it's hard to imagine New York City without Broadway. Right. And in retrospect, we can sit here and be like, well, that's that's insane to even consider that thought. So I, I'm a little interested. Uh, we don't have to do like the uh, deep socioeconomic <laughs> study of, of the reasons. I actually I interviewed uh, this guy who wrote a book about uh, this distillery in Kentucky, um, Pappy Van Winkle. And it's very popular oh. um, among bourbon drinkers. Maybe you're familiar Yes, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of a Pappy Van. Okay, okay. <laughs> As am I. It's a little out of my price range, but uh, I'm, a, I'm yeah, a fan if I, if I get a hold I've of a bottle. Treated. Okay. I've been treated to a, to a drink. That's about it. Well, I, I talked to this author, and we talked about how uh, in the 50s, bourbon was the drink, and then uh, starting in the 60s, it kind of faded away, and there was like a number of reasons. James Bond was drinking martinis, and all of a sudden, people weren't <laughs> drinking bourbon as much, and some of these Kentucky distilleries closed, and then here we are, you know, decades later, and it's this huge uh, thing again. Well, with uh, some of those Broadway productions, and we look at why some of these issues popped up in the late 60s and 70s, and I know there's several reasons, but can we tie some of that to shifting cultural taste? People just weren't going to musicals or the theater as much? Well, well it, was a, it was a, very quickly, it was a combination of that and a few other things. I mean, rock and roll had a big impact on, on our world. You know, and once the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Motown and all these other amazing artists hit the scene, as one of the people in our film says, the Broadway shows in the 60s sort of felt like something your grandmother would go to. Um, it wasn't, didn't really feel like it was what was happening. You know, Broadway had been in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and early 60s. It had been the center of the American cultural zeitgeist. All the songs that were on the hit parade, you know, that were the popular music of, of America and the world, 
came from the scores of Broadway shows, all of them. By the late 60s, all of that had kind of faded. The plays were kind of mediocre. We were importing some stuff from England, but with the exception of a few Pinter and Beckett plays, it was mostly felt kind of tired, old-fashioned stuff. Audiences were just, you know, stopped being interested. But the other really big factors is that, you know, the city of New York was bankrupt, and there'd been no development in the Times Square area for many years. And so the neighborhood had been kind of taken over by the, you know, industries of pornography and prostitution and drug dealing. And it was run by the mafia. And then there were real estate moguls who owned property who were willing to give up their, you know, to rent their properties to the, you know, shall we call it the criminal element, <laughs> because they were getting good money from it. And the police were being paid off, off to let this stuff happen. One of the people we interviewed told a story that every Friday, every precinct in the neighborhood would get an envelope from the local madam with, you know, cash for the police to leave them alone, as well as an invitation for free services for the policemen to come to their establishment. Yikes. So it was, you know, it was a kind of Wild West scene. And that doesn't, that's not really good for the, for the theater industry. I mean, there was actually, the police were handing out flyers in the late 60s telling people to get home before dark which, you know, how do you sell theater tickets when that's happening? Right. So slowly, Broadway is reinvigorated starting in the, I think, the, the mid-70s. And there isn't a, a single silver bullet, but it did seem to me, watching your film, uh, that the 1975 musical A Chorus Line played a big role in that comeback. Is that fair to say? It played a huge role. And, it, and as well as that show itself, which broke new ground, in terms of the kind of musical it was, the subject matter that it treated, it, it showed the lives of gay Americans and black and Latino Americans and figures who were sort of, you know, marginal, ordinary kind of people that hadn't been the subject of a Broadway musical before. All of that was really important. But maybe the most lasting impact of Chorus Line was that it came out of a nonprofit theater, an off-Broadway theater, the public theater, where you know, theater was based on a different model than the commercial Broadway model. It was based on subscription audiences who, you know, sustained a theater year in and year out. They would be loyal audiences who would buy a whole season worth of tickets and subscribe to whatever the, the theater was doing. And they were, you know, able to develop plays at much lower cost than they were in Broadway theaters where you had more expensive union costs. And um, you didn't have philanthropic subsidies the way you had for the nonprofit theaters. So theaters like the public theater, that was Chorus Line was the first. But then that became the norm of Broadway producers would find their material from these nonprofit theaters, both in New York. Many of the off-Broadway theaters at the time were nonprofit theaters. And then around the country, the regional theater movement, which had started in the 60s and 70s, where you know, many cities had their own nonprofit theater that was developing new plays and many of those would come to Broadway. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with filmmaker Oren Jacoby about his documentary on Broadway. I think the, the film does a really great job of showing us this history of how things changed, um, but distilling it, because otherwise it could get bogged down because there's so much, but you do a great job of highlighting these important things. And we talked about uh, a chorus line and you highlight some of these other landmark productions that really became smashes. Still, was it challenging to decide what to include? Was it hard to curate what you were going to spend time on? That was a really important decision. And it was something that, you know, I had to be disciplined about from the very beginning. And I had to say to myself, first of all, you can't just put in your favorite shows. 
<laughs> you can't put in all the plays you love or the the artists that you think are the best. You have to really pick the shows that turn things around. You know, and it's pretty clear to to trace that there were, you know, musicals and a few plays that had this kind of impact that the that Broadway was different after they came along. They couldn't, you know, people couldn't go back and do things the old way anymore. Um and so we picked about 10 shows and tried to have a mix of, of plays without music and musicals. And the other key was, and the thing that really makes our film work, I think, is we got the people who did it. You know, it's the stories are told by the artists, the writers, the directors, and I think most importantly, some of the great actors who brought these shows to life and who carry with them the kind of legacy of what Broadway means. And particularly some of the, the fabulous actors that we were able to interview, they have so much love for what they're doing, and they have so much a sense that they're part of this tradition that they have to uphold and that they care about. And that love kind of pours out, I think, from the, from the stories that they tell. Um, so that was, a, that was a key component in, in our decision of what, to, what shows to include would be who could we get to tell the story. Yeah, some really talented people are, are interviewed. Helen Mirren, Ian McKellen, George C. Wolfe. Did you have a, a list uh, of people you wanted to, to talk to? Yeah, um, it was, you know, it's a long list. It's the most people I've ever interviewed for, for a single film. I think we interviewed more than 40 people, and almost all of the interviews made it into the film. And, uh, you know, we, we had a list. There were a few people we weren't able to get because they were very busy at the time with other productions or some had gone off to make movies and they just weren't around. Some were in, in London in rehearsal and plays. Uh, Patty Lupone, we're very sorry not to have included, and, and uh, a few others. Then Manuel Miranda was making a movie, and, and I think he was making Mary Poppins somewhere. But we do have a tremendous cast, and the, some of the people we weren't able to interview ourselves, we were able to get wonderful archival interviews with. And then we were able to get you know, fabulous clips of many of the, of the shows that we're showing were the landmark. Uh, you know, important and fun, most exciting things that were done on Broadway through this period. And then interspliced within the film, uh, with this look back at history, are scenes of the making of a newer production, The Nap. Why was that important for you to include? Well, as we started to do interviews with a lot of the important theater makers, there was a real concern in 2018. There had been a trend for several seasons of fewer and fewer new plays being done as opposed to musicals. Just because musicals are, you know, much more remunerative. I mean, they, you can make a lot more money. They're, the audiences are, 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 they appeal to a wider audience. They appeal to tourists, which now make up about two-thirds of the Broadway audience. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't have to speak English to go and see uh, um uh, Phantom of the Opera. You've heard the music. You know the sort of general story. You can go if, if you're from another country and, and want to experience Broadway. But if you're going to go see a new play with complicated plot and dialogue, it's going to be much harder if you're a tourist. So plays in general were just starting to to become a vanishing breed. And we were really concerned to show and wanted to show that throughout its its history, Broadway producers and theater owners, too, had been very conscientious about trying to uphold both traditions and have both musicals and then regular plays. And so we wanted to show a play. And we also wanted to show a play that was on a very, you know, had a certain high degree of risk, because that also is important. It's people don't just do 
you know, revivals of some old popular chestnut or do a new play that has a movie star or do something that was a big hit in London and so they can bring it to Broadway. But if we're going to have a vital Broadway theater, there have to be new plays and that take on risky subject. And so we picked a comedy, but it was risky in that it's about a sports snooker, which most Americans don't even know exists. It's a kind of variation of pool. And it had the first transgender star playing a transgender character. Um, Alexander Billings was featured in the map, and so we were excited to show a play that was breaking this new ground and was fun and that you know took people behind the scenes to experience something about Broadway that they don't usually get to see, which is actors preparing and going through the the, you know, the challenge of, of bringing a new play to life. I really appreciated that you didn't just gloss over some of the concerns that are out there about you know the business of Broadway and the the commercialization of, of some of the the productions that are out there. I think James Corden who you interview talks a little bit about there's this feeling that there's a lot of jukebox musicals and film adaptations and revivals and not a lot of new work. So I appreciated that you did spend some time talking about those concerns and that there's still this desire for new art, for new productions that are thought provoking. And what I really learned making the film is, you know, I used to think Broadway was just a kind of commercial hodgepodge of, you know, the capitalist system, whatever sells goes, you know, and so there's a little of this and a little of that. But what I think I really discovered working on this film is that there really is a kind of ecosystem that the people who are part of the Broadway industry understand that they have to do more than just put on entertainments that make money. Um, there was a great line from actually from, from Jerry Schoenfeld who said, you know, the people we're competing with, the movies, television, uh, the sports teams and, and, you know, more recently the Internet and video games, they're just entertainment. That's the only bar they have to, you know, they have to be passed. They have to be fun. They have to be entertaining. But Broadway is also the kind of repository of, you know, the most ancient art form in the world. I mean, it goes back to, the, to classical Greece as people were doing plays. And people look to Broadway to uphold the tradition of great drama and great as well as great musicals, which is a kind of American art form that was invented in New York on Broadway. So they feel a responsibility to sustain these traditions and to do good work, as well as to make money. One can't exist without the other. You know, if you just do high art that nobody wants to go see, Broadway would die. You have to put in stuff that's entertaining, that's going to appeal to all kinds of people. And that creates a sort of a bedrock of, of a successful, you know, industry where you can then also do things that are for more specialized interest. That was Oren Jacoby. He's the director of the documentary on Broadway. You can stream the film at home for free by going to canopy.com. All you need is a library card. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on... 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Thanks for listening.